and I walk in and see this Army officer. It is suddenly as clear as day why he's there. I had nothing to show for my time with Dean. You know, there is a chance the man who shot them or the men who shot them are still alive in this area somewhere. And that's when the man in blue stepped into the cane field and pointed to the ground and said, this is the spot. Imagine losing the person you love to war and never knowing the full truth behind what happened. Now imagine decades later, traveling thousands of miles away from home to pay a final tribute at the place where your loved one died. And by mere chance, you end up meeting the person who may have been responsible for their death. What would you do? Welcome to The Day We Met. Stories about first encounters, what came before, and what happened next. I'm Joe Van Eck. This is the story of Dean, Hattie, Jim, and the man in blue. Hi, Hattie. Hello. Hi, Joe. Uh, how you guys doing? Well, we're doing all right, enjoying a sunny day. It's a little warm here for this time of year. I was 10 when I first met Hattie and Jim Ford. Their oldest son and I were in the same fifth grade class in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And he and I grew especially close in high school. We went to Loy Norix, where Hattie was not only a teacher, but also our senior class advisor. I spent a lot of time at the Ford's house in those years. But until recently, I'd never heard the story about Hattie's first husband, who was killed in the war in Vietnam. When did you tell your kids about Dean? Hmm. Uh, geez, it's just not anything I ever had. One of Mary's friends asked her in North Carolina, did you know about this? And her response was, yep, the wedding albums are right next to each other on the bookshelf. Um. <laughs> So they've virtually known about it. I don't, I don't, there was never a time when I said, well, sit down here, I've got something to tell you. Hattie was born on September 15, 1946, in southeast Georgia. She grew up in the small rural farming community of Graham, just outside Baxley. The little town was not very big at all. Growing up, a large part of my life was our church activities, which were only a couple of miles or less down the road from our house. I think it's fair to say it was a um, church and faith-based upbringing. Like, it's, of course, Jim always calls me Pollyanna anyway. I always thought it was, um, <laughs> um, I always thought that life was grand. What would you and your friends do for fun? <laughs> In my really younger days, I pretty much entertained myself. I did have high school friends who I would visit with and they would visit with me. There was a little drugstore in town that sold pickle buns. They were, and even now on Facebook, the Baxley, the people that grew up in Baxley will exchange little stories about going to uh, Fulgham's drugstore and getting a pickle bun for a nickel and a, and a Coke for a nickel. And that was our after school or <laughs> act, uh, a little treat. Sorry, what, what exactly is a, a pickle bun? A is it pickle, a pickle bun is, is a hot dog bun with just dill pickles in it. And I think they always used sliced pickles. They didn't use the wet, you know, the spears. They put sliced pickles 
in a hot dog bun and put this special sauce on it. And it was it was a treat. <laughs> <laughs> a, a pretty, pretty simple life, really. After graduating high school, Hattie enrolled at the University of Georgia in Athens in September 1964. And that was another thing that was unusual in our area. I mean, farm kids didn't go to college. But my parents were, and, and especially my mother. Now, here, see, this is kind of the kind of, she was adamant that we go to, have a chance to go to college. Were you excited to go to college? Oh, yeah. That was quite a change. And and being away from home and living in a dorm with, you know, how many hundreds of other girls. I lived in the biggest dorm on campus as a college freshman. But it was quite a change. I've never been one to worry too much about, you know, what's going to happen? Am I going to do this right? Or, you know, to be have a lot of fear. I just kind of plot along. And, 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 and of course, there was excitement about it, really, uh, to be going away to college. Like a lot of college freshmen, Hattie spent the first days and weeks at UGA just finding her way, making new friends, basically figuring out her new life. But it wasn't long before she landed at the Wesley Foundation, the Methodist Center at the university, and it quickly became the center of her social life at school. It really was just a place for kids to go and hang out. There was a TV. There were we do spaghetti suppers, and then that's where I met Dean. My first uh, a week or two, I guess. Dean Taylor Jr. was born on August 25, 1946, in Palmyra, New York. His family spent some years in Florida when he was a young boy, and around the time he was in junior high, they moved to Atlanta, Georgia. My children always thought the pictures of Dean looked just like Derek Jeter. He was, you know, tall and thin, had dark curly hair. His mother was Italian, so there was, you know, a dark complexion of, to some extent. So, you know, he wasn't a hippie to wear his hair long or anything. Um, so a short haircut with lots of curls on top, dark eyes. He was, I say he was tall. He was no more than maybe six feet tall. Drove a little red TR4 sports car when I first met him. So he loved nifty cars. What is it about Dean that drew you to him? Oh, I don't know. He was just a cute kid with a, with good personality. And he was, I don't know, he was just, <laughs> uh, what makes any of us? attracts any of us to to those partners we choose. <laughs> was he funny? Um, well, not so much, uh, but he had a sense of humor. Would you describe him as uh, an outgoing individual? Was he kind of the quiet type? Yeah, yeah, very, very, yeah, he was. I mean, a salesman got to be, got to have some personality, you know. <laughs> so that, yeah, that was definitely part of it. So there was a confidence to him. Yes. As a young man, Dean would accompany his father on business trips, where he learned the art of the sales trade. Sometime after their move to Atlanta, his parents started a wholesale home accessory business. Dean began making sales trips on his own. He was good at it, and he had a job waiting for him after college. He was not at school because he wanted to be. He felt like he had a life in that business. I think that that was the, would have been the, the route he would have gone, even right out of high school. But Vietnam, you know, influenced a lot of decisions in those days. And he went to the university strictly because that was a protection from the draft. After the second semester, he decided that he was wasting money and not doing well. And so he went home and faced the inevitable draft. 
he wasn't as worried anymore that he would get drafted? Well, I think he was. I think he just, like I say, he just wasn't a student. He was not the academic. I guess he just decided that, that it made more sense for him to just go ahead and accept the, the military. Dean dropped out of UGA after the spring quarter in 1965. That fall, he received a letter. It read, Greeting, you are hereby ordered for induction into the armed forces of the United States. He would become one of over 2.2 million American men drafted between 1964 and 1973. 648,500 of those men, including Dean, would ultimately serve in Vietnam. What was Dean's reaction when he got drafted? Was he upset, scared? Did Vietnam scare him? Was he worried? Yeah, he was. How did you guys feel about the war at that point? Well, again, I'm what I've always, if one of the rules are, I follow them. And I think at that point, the college scene had just not worked for him. It wasn't something he wanted to do. And the, so he, he didn't, would never, he would never, I don't think the thought ever occurred to him to, well, I, that's probably not true. It probably did occur to him to leave the country. I think it probably occurred to most of the young men. Uh, or at least a huge portion of them. But you guys didn't talk about it? We didn't. No, we did not. We really didn't. Dean was sent to California for boot camp and eventually applied to Officer Candidate School, or OCS. Throughout his training, Hattie continued her studies at the University of Georgia, but the two maintained their relationship and saw each other whenever possible. Dean finished OCS and received his commission in May 1967, Hattie left school that same spring, and in June of that year, they got married. We wanted to have the time, whatever time together that we could have, and facing the reality of his going to Vietnam would, could very possibly be you know, a, a death sentence for him. And so there was no hesitation to drop out of school and get married and spend as much time together as we could. Dean was assigned to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and he and Hattie moved there after getting married. The survival rate of an officer in Vietnam was higher than the average foot soldier. That was a big reason why Dean signed up for OCS in the first place. And that same thinking was behind his next decision. He applied and was accepted into the Army's helicopter pilot training program. And in November 1968, he reported to Fort Walters, Texas. Hattie joined him in December. My first Christmas away from home, and that was hard. They needed lots of helicopter pilots, so there were lots of them accepted. It delayed his having to go to Vietnam, and it also put him in a better position when he was there. Um, turns out not to necessarily serve him that well, but, but he did everything he could to be in the best position he could be in when he got there. You've talked about Dean obviously feeling worried over having to go to Vietnam. Did you feel that on a daily basis? Like, was there tension and stress that you, you sort of felt just, you know, kind of originating from that, that worry and that fear? Did it affect you guys at all? Well, you know, I'm sure it affected him more than it did me. It did not create a stress between us, really. But there was definitely a, a worry about what was coming, yes, for, for both of us. And we we just kind of, as so many people did at, at that time. I mean, it was a, a reality we had to face, and we just, faced the reality and took one day at a time. For the second and final leg of his pilot training, 
Dean had a choice between Fort Rucker in Alabama or the Hunter Stewart base in Savannah, Georgia. And we went to Savannah because it was, you know, Georgia was home. So when did Dean ship off to Vietnam? He left in uh, November of um, 68. How often were you writing to each other? Oh, about every day. <laughs> now, Matt, I might see it. I mean, well, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a, a religious routine to make sure I got a letter off every day, but it, I don't know that I missed many. And he wrote you as much as well? He, yeah, yes, he did. In his letters home to Hattie, Dean would remind her to take care of routine things, like keeping the car serviced, renewing the plates, paying taxes. He wrote of his days in Vietnam. They were long and would drag on. He flew seven to eight hours every day and felt exhausted all the time. Understandable, considering every minute of those hours likely came the awareness that he could be shot down at any moment. It was an incredibly lonely existence being so far away from home, without family or friends, to help carry him through it. And so when he's in Vietnam, where are you? We, we decided I would go back to school and because, see, I dropped out of college to, when we got married. I had only about two years, I guess, behind me at that point. So I was going to go back to university and live in a dorm and finish my degree. Then he would be home and we would probably end up in Atlanta, like, say, continuing his family's business, and I would teach. Or, you know, that was the plan. Hattie resumed her studies at the University of Georgia in January 1969. On the night of January 14th, she was in her dorm room, getting ready to write Dean one of her letters. I was sitting at my desk that evening. I had a you know an 8 by 10 photograph of him in his green military uniform, not um, the, the dress uniform. And just like I say, the, Vietnam was was in your mind constantly. It just didn't go away. It was part of life. And you just, it, you just lived with that bad little factor that that really affected, uh, virtually affected everything you did. I mean, you went through your routines, uh, daily routines, and but that's always there in the back of your mind. And so in writing this letter to Dean, I was thinking about him and where he was. And I don't remember that there was anything in particular that he, I'd gotten in a letter from him that might have prompted the thought. But, but it was, I mean, you were, like you say, you were hearing of the deaths every day on the news. And just sort of thinking, contemplating my what I would say to him or what I would write next. I don't remember where I was in the letter, if I'd had just getting started or if I had half of it done or what. Um, but just kind of focusing on his photograph there. And it was this image across, just across the bottom of that photograph of Dean in the coffin in his dress blues, though, not in the green uniform, in the dress blues. And... I immediately uh, snapped at it. I did not like that thought at all and did not allow myself to have it for very long or dwell on it. I'm foolish, you know, you can't think those things, you know. And I got back to my letter writing. The next afternoon, on January 15th, Hattie was heading back to her dorm after her final class of the day when she ran into someone she hadn't seen since returning to school. I can't even remember who that was. I, I just remember that it was somebody I hadn't seen in a while. We stood there and just talked for an hour or more. What had been going on in the year or so since, you know, since we'd been in school together. And when I got to my room, there's a note on my door to see the 
to see the house mother. We still had house mothers. <laughs> and again, I did. I thought nothing of it. I said to my brother, I must be in trouble, but I was never in trouble for anything. Like I said, I was, if there was a rule, I followed it and didn't question it. I would never make it as a protester, I guess. Hattie walked into the lobby of her dorm, and standing at the front desk waiting for her was her older brother, Bain. He lived nowhere near Athens, but his sudden appearance didn't strike her as odd. He traveled with this work, and not so much in Athens. I wouldn't have expected him necessarily to be in Athens, but the fact that he was did not surprise me, whatever. And so I just kind of laughingly said, well, I've just, and showed him the note. I've just got this note to see the house mother. I've just got back from class a little late today. Come with me and let's see what kind of trouble I'm in. And of course, as soon as I knock on the door and the house mother invites me in and I walk in and see this army officer. And it is suddenly as clear as day why he's there. They, the officer had first looked for me to see in at my parents' home because that's the address that Dean had given them that where I could be reached. Well, of course, I wasn't there, and they couldn't give my parents any information. But when an Army officer shows up asking for where Harry Taylor is uh, and the family uh, conclusions were made in a hurry of what that was about, and with Bain's position, he had access to the uh, company airplanes, and he and the pilot got on, didn't get in the car, they got on the plane, and people talk about um, divine intervention or whatever that is was involved in that event in my life. I just didn't stop and chat for hours on a sidewalk and come in late and that kind of thing. But having done that gave Bain time, and he was in my dormitory with me at the time. I got the news of my husband's death. Wow. First Lieutenant Dean Taylor Jr. had been in Vietnam just over two months. He was 22 years old. His crew, Captain Bruce Bowles, 27 of Boise, Idaho, and First Lieutenant Jan Christensen, 21 of Austin, Minnesota, were also killed. And when you first learned of that news, I mean, did it did it hit you, or did it take a moment to sink in? Did you were you in disbelief? I mean, what was your initial reaction and in, in your feeling? Well, I, um, I, I, it, it wasn't a thing of just totally collapsing and falling apart, but it was a thing of just, I, I guess, a situation being just drained. Oh no, this wasn't supposed to happen, kind of thing. Um, I guess, um, tears for a while, but, uh, uh, an ability to maintain some, somewhat composure because I had to go tell his parents. I couldn't be, I couldn't be too much of a, a softy there. I had, I had, it took some strength, some effort and, and I managed that well. You knew that you, are you the type of person who, I mean, you take the time that you need, but you know, okay, I got to get up and I got to keep moving now. Life goes on and. Is that is that your personality? Well, yeah, I I think that yeah, I think that's it. I just thought, well, you, I I can't feel sorry for myself. Look at the people 
around you. I mean, look at my, I had a first cousin killed in Vietnam. Um, I had a high school, a good high school friend that was killed in Vietnam. I can't feel sorry for myself. My situation is no worse than anybody else's. And, and I just, I just have to make the most of this and, and keep going. Hattie received a notice from the Army, providing her with an explanation of what happened. It stated that Dean had died in a helicopter crash, and that was it. She was given no other information. But then, a day or two later, came a correction. The helicopter had been shot down. Dean, Bruce, and Jan survived the crash, but were killed by ground fire. The second and final notice gave no details about the mission they were on. Really, that's really about all that I had. It was his helicopter was shot down, and he was killed. At some point, Hattie thought back to the letter she had been writing Dean the night before she learned of his death, and the vision she had of him, lying in a coffin. There's a 12-hour difference from here to Vietnam. And so that was 9 o'clock at night. He was killed about the, just very near the time that that image appeared to me. I know that you had to be strong for his parents when you delivered that news, but as time goes by and the weeks turn into months, were you beginning to feel angry or upset or like what were you what were you going through? It was a it was a, a bit of a low time for me, and especially early on. It just I don't know. There's just um, sad, not a sadness. So you just kind of move on. You're, it's a but an emptiness, a void that had just. I mean my life had just kind of been wiped away and and another thing I'm in fact I'm not sure I probably would not even shared this with my with my children or Jim but there was the there was the thought that I have nothing left and this is one of the things I keep saying to Jim I just don't want Dean's memory to to fade and he said well Hattie all of our memories are going to fade in 50 years well Let's try to keep even Dean's memory around for another fifty years. But I, I, the you know what you share with with your partner, with your husband or your wife, your spouse, is to create a family and have a family together. That was our plan, and I didn't have that. I didn't. I I was left with nothing uh, except my own memories, and I knew to 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 wish to have this child at that point would not be fair to a, a child to want him to grow up without parent without his father, but somehow that was a strong awareness of mine that I had nothing to show for my time with Dean. And in fact, so much so that I missed my periods for a couple of months. I think that's something my body did, my mind, body all together from from being in a state of, of a kind of state of mourning still. But but that I think that is an indication that there was a lot more going on than I would allow myself to express or would allow to be seen. The story will continue in just a moment. After Dean was killed, Hattie left school for a second time. She returned home to Graham, Georgia, and over the next eight months, worked through her grief. She told me it felt good to be home, to have her family by her side as she mourned the loss of her husband. In September of 1969, she was finally ready to return to UGA. And so I bought a mobile home and had my own place in 
and got involved again in the little community there uh, with the church and softball league and some of that stuff and just, yeah, and just tried to live a normal life and did. It was coming along pretty well. In 1971, seven years after she first enrolled and just over two years since Dean's death, Hattie graduated from the University of Georgia. In the three years after graduation, she split her time between Athens and back home on the farm in Graham. In the summer of 74, she moved back to Athens to finish her master's and stayed with a friend who had an apartment there. Katrina and I had been in touch, and she said, oh, well, I'm going home to visit, to, to spend most of the summer with my family in Moultrie, Georgia. My apartment will be empty, but you're welcome to have my apartment for the summer. So I went to live in Katrina's apartment. Well, in the meantime, Katrina's dating this guy in law school. And Bill had the perfect guy that Hattie should meet. It was in law school with him. So they gave Jim my phone number and gave me Jim's phone number. And Jim and I were supposed to get in touch. <laughs> Jim Ford was born on March 10, 1946. He grew up in Michigan, and like Dean, he'd been a pilot and fought in Vietnam. He came home from the war in June 1973 and started law school at UGA that August. Hattie and Jim did get in touch that summer of 74 and agreed to meet. It was a blind date. Uh, I gave her a call and we met one evening and had dinner, as I recall, and then we went to see a movie. It was... uh, Chinatown. Chinatown with Jack Nicholson. That's a very intense first movie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but he's so clever. Just listen to his story. (laughs) There was a a scene in that movie where he was with, I think, Faye Dunaway Mm -hmm. and looked at her and said, there's something in your eye. And then he leaned in closer and he kissed her. And I took her home, Hattie home that night after the movie and stopped at the door and I looked at her and I said, there's something in your eye. And she held still and I leaned in and I kissed her. And I've always said, that's when I knew this was going to be easy. <laughs> <laughs> I think she, she had already completely forgotten about the movie, but I hadn't. <laughs> I certainly didn't pick up on that line. <laughs> Been all downhill for her. Yeah. <laughs> In August 1975, almost one year exactly after that first blind date, Jim and Hattie were married. After Jim graduated from law school that December, they packed up their belongings and moved to Michigan. Jim became a lawyer for the Upjohn Company, and Hattie began teaching for Kalamazoo Public Schools. They raised three children together, and to this day, they still call Michigan home. I want to go back to 1968 for a moment. Jim was getting ready to graduate from the University of Michigan. His plan was to go to law school right away. But in 1968, the grad school deferment policy changed, meaning he would almost certainly be drafted into the Army and sent to Vietnam following the completion of his undergrad studies. And sure enough, the draft notice did come. But by then, Jim had taken control of his own fate, choosing instead to enlist in the Air Force Reserves so he could steer clear of ground combat. What were your feelings on the war when you enlisted? Quite strongly opposed to it by that time. I think when it started back in 64, even 65, you know, accepted what the government was saying and and thought that it was reasonable. But by 1968, you had to be, uh, you know, deaf, dumb and blind to think that that was uh, 
war that we had uh, either any business being in or any chance to win. You know, by the time I enlisted, I was convinced that it was a fool's errand, and, and you know, pretty clearly it was. Jim finished up his pilot training in October of 1969. For the next three years, he was assigned to a base in Dover, Delaware, where he flew four-engine C-141 transports. On the first trip I went to Vietnam, they loaded it up there to come home, and I got on the airplane, and the first thing I saw was a, a pallet full of caskets. We would do that on almost every flight into Vietnam. And then in uh, 1972, I got an assignment to, uh, to Vietnam. The assignment that I was initially given was to fly a C-119 gunship. And by that time, I was so opposed to the war that essentially I, I said, I won't do it. I'll go to Vietnam. I'll, uh, you know, God forbid I'll die there, but I'm not going to kill anybody for that war. At first, the Air Force refused to change Jim's assignment. But not long after, the decision was reversed. So for the next year, instead of a gunship, he piloted a C-47 electronic surveillance aircraft, flying missions into Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. A crew working the sophisticated equipment in the back would eavesdrop on North Vietnamese communications. When they got a good target, they, they would triangulate and locate the exact position of those radios and then would call in uh, usually B-52s to, to bomb it. I'm not sure that there was any moral difference between flying a gunship and doing that, but I guess it was enough to satisfy my conscience. Wow. While in Southeast Asia, Jim would spend about six weeks in Saigon and a few days in Da Nang. But for most of his time, he was stationed at the Nakhon Phanom Royal Thai Navy Base in Thailand, near the Laotian border. It was, I had bad memories, mostly. In Thailand, I had a roommate who uh, was killed there. I had some other friends in my squadron that uh, were shot down and killed, so it, it wasn't a, a pleasant experience by any means. When did you first start thinking about taking a trip to Vietnam to see where Dean was shot down? I think I was probably the one who really thought about that. I had not been back to Vietnam in almost 50 years. Initially, I mean, it was out of the question, especially right after the war. I, I wouldn't have considered it. But over time, the curiosity grew, and I wanted to see that country one more time. I had raised the prospect uh, with Hattie of going back, and she wanted to do it. I thought that was good. That's good. That would be a good thing to do. Jim started researching. He and Hattie knew very little details about the crash beyond the fact that Dean and his crew had been killed by gunfire once they were on the ground. Where exactly Dean's helicopter had gone down remained a mystery. But after, as Jim described it, many, many hours using the miracle of the internet, he was able to locate the Army's incident report, unlocking the location. I thought that I had located the spot probably within 100 yards or so. I was virtually certain that I had it, and it was in a little hamlet. And uh, so we scheduled this trip so that on January 15, 2019, 50th anniversary of his death, that we would be in that hamlet and just see what we could find. And that's what we did. 
To hear the conclusion of this story, check out part two of Dean, Hattie, Jim, and the Man in Blue, available now. The Day We Met is a Floating Machine production. It's written, produced, and edited by me, Joe Vanek. The theme song was written and composed by Timothy Nordwin. Original cover art by Elena Flores. The episode was mixed by Dan Kanopka. Music courtesy of BMG and Vanacore. Thanks for listening. You can find us on the socials at The Day We Met Pod. If you or someone you know have a story to share, email us at submissions at thedaywemetpod.com.